This is Apathy Hour. June 15, 1215. King John of England affixes his seal to the Magna Carta at Runnymede. This event is celebrated throughout the UK, the US, Canada, and many other countries as the cornerstone of the concept of rights and liberties by which people are governed today. The signing of the Magna Carta was the first time in history a king had granted such a charter against his will and, therefore, the first time a king had to formally acknowledge the existence of a higher authority than himself in relation to his rule. While many of the 63 clauses of the charter dealt with the rights of the barons who had forced the king's acquiescence, the most monumental of these clauses confirms the right of all English subjects to justice and a fair trial. In a modern interpretation, it means that no man shall be arrested, imprisoned, or denied of his possessions or his liberties, nor shall the king or his agents proceed with force to do so without a lawful judgment by his equals or by the law of the land. This clause has become the basis of justice for all, not merely for the rich and powerful. However, those rights and liberties listed in the Magna Carta were in existence long before the English barons forced John to sign the charter. In 1100 AD, King Henry I issued a charter of liberties. Among other things, it provided that his barons, like commoners, would be held accountable for crimes they committed and would be required to make amends accordingly, and would not be allowed to avoid punishment by paying bribes to the crown. It also promised that the king would impose a strict peace upon the land and command that it be maintained. Henry also committed to repeal the unjust laws of his brother, William II, and that his government would restore the laws of Edward the Confessor, the last reigning king of the line of Anglo-Saxon kings of Wessex, who had welded England into a united kingdom. Henry ordered that copies of this charter be displayed in every parish in England. He seems to have had little intention of biding by this charter, for within months every copy of the charter had disappeared and Henry never seemed to abide by this charter after he became king. So why did he proclaim it? The answer seems to lie in the final clause of the charter. When King Edward the Confessor died in 1066, he left no offspring. As a result, the English Witten Council of Nobles appointed Harold Godwinson to be king. That same year, William of Normandy invaded and Harold was killed in that invasion. William expected the Witten to capitulate and name him king, but instead, the council appointed Edgar, 14-year-old grandson of the late King Ethelred, who became known as the Etherling, royal heir. William the Conqueror pressed his invasion and finally forced the Witten to surrender the throne to him. Edgar the Etherling led a resistance against William, which lasted for most of William's reign. Edgar had a niece named Edith, whose beauty was widely renowned. Henry fell in love with her and pursued her hand in marriage. Edith rejected his courtship unless he agreed to return England to the laws by which her Anglo-Saxon 
ancestors had ruled. Henry relented and promised to proclaim a charter of liberties. Edith married him and adopted the name Matilda and became known as the Good Queen Maud. The sources of the clauses in the charter go back many centuries before Henry's marriage. When King Alfred the Great drove back the Viking invasion, he declared that all English law be in writing and written in English so that all men would know the limits of their liberty. When his great-grandson, Edgar the Peaceful, became king, he declared that England would enjoy peace at all times by his judgments. He would forbid all manner of wrongdoings by all orders of men, and he would employ mercy in all of his judgments. When Edgar's son, Ethelred, became king, he declared that in every wapentake or district, there should be 12 of the eldest thanes or minor landholders and a reeve who would hear every transgression and would swear to never knowingly accuse an innocent man nor conceal a guilty one. These liberties, declared by these ancient Anglo-Saxon kings, are the traditions upon which the Magna Carta was built. But unlike the earlier declarations, the liberties and freedoms in the Magna Carta were not declared voluntarily. As a result, like a constitution, they could not be revoked arbitrarily, and so was born the concept of government being accountable to the governed. In case you didn't recognize these words, which initially I didn't myself, the word Witten or Witan is short for Wittenagemot. It's an Anglo-Saxon parliament, an old English genitive plural of Witta, meaning man of knowledge, and related to wit plus gemot, which means assembly or council. Another word that came up was wapentake. The meaning is a division of certain English counties, an equivalent to a hundred in other places. In Old English, it means division of a writing. From Old Norse vapnaktak, from vapna, genitive plural of vapen, meaning weapon, plus tak, meaning a touch, a take hold of, or a grasp. But I digress, because that is not what we are here to focus on. When all is said and done, just as William of Normandy expected the Witan to capitulate and name him king, King John ceased resisting the will of the English nobility and capitulated to guaranteeing the rights they revolted for. Capitulation. The definition of this word is to surrender or to cease resistance to an unwelcome demand. A synonym or similar word that you would find to this in a thesaurus is to give in or concede defeat or submit. The root word of capitulate is a verb from the 1590s meaning to draw up a writing in chapters or articles, i.e. under headings in part a back formation from capitulation, and in part from medieval Latin capitulatus, past particle of capitulare, meaning to draw up in heads or chapters. Hence, arrange conditions from capitulum, chapter, which in classical Latin is headings. Often this was in reference to terms of surrender, and thus it came to mean by the 1680s to yield to an enemy on stipulated terms. 
Capitulate and its synonyms yield, submit, and succumb all mean to give way to someone or something, but have a few slight differences in emphasis. Yield may apply to any sort or degree of bowing to force, debate, or pleading. For example, yields too easily in any argument. Submit suggests surrender after resistance to the will or control of another. For example, the soldiers submitted to their captors. Succumb imputes weakness and helplessness to the person giving in, or an overwhelming power to the opposition. For example, succumbing to temptation. Capitulate stresses determination of all resistance and may imply either a coming to terms as with an adversary or hopelessness before an irresistible opposing force. For example, team owners capitulated to the demands of the player's union. Another example would be real estate experts say retailers are increasingly looking to pay rent as a percentage of sales, making it a variable expense on their balance sheets rather than a fixed one. While there could be some hesitation to strike a deal like this, landlords could end up capitulating to keep a space occupied. A bit of dating advice. Don't make excuses for bad behavior. The simple solution is that he or she is not as into you as you thought. If someone is really into you, they usually won't flake or take forever to respond to your calls or messages. If they do, they will likely take the initiative to suggest another date or at the least another time when they are available. Similarly, odd behavior, weird excuses, or no reason at all for not spending time with or talking to you is a good indicator that they are not as interested as you previously thought. We all make time for whom or what is important to us. Think of yourself for a moment and any experience you've had where something wasn't important, but suddenly became important when you knew it was due or about to be late. We prioritize what we feel is worth our time. If a person you're interested in isn't prioritizing you or at least communicating, it may be best to capitulate your feelings for this person and move on. And finally, you should know. You should know adopting a child is not like getting approved to adopt a puppy. It's a long and often heartbreaking process and flippantly suggesting that someone just adopt shows ignorance of that fact. Why you should know? As someone stated in their words, when I was younger, I really wasn't aware of this myself and so can't blame others for not being aware. But I've now seen friends go through the process and looked into it myself. And I've been interested for a long time in foster slash adopting when my kids get older. I've also spent a good bit of time reading people's experiences and an awful lot of people have this misconception that adopting is an easy default backup plan. Adoption is a tough process. 
if you want a baby, odds are you've already been through the heartbreaking experience of infertility. You have to go through education and approval, often pay a lot of money, and then still have a substantial risk of the birth parent backing out or worse, deciding they want the baby back after you've taken it home. I can only imagine how awful that is. If you want to adopt non-infants, these aren't kids coming from pristine backgrounds here. They are almost always going to have special needs or mental baggage to work through. They may grow up and re- they may grow up and reject you and go back to their birth family. When you foster, you have to accept that the kids are coming to you from bad situations and sometimes from other bad foster homes that you don't get to keep them forever and that the real goal is to reunite them with the parent who lost them in the first place. It's not easy or pretty and it's important to recognize that this isn't for everyone. There are a few films that come to mind regarding the subject of adoption such as Instant Family and Despicable Me but of course real life is not the same as cinema. One such example of someone whom was adopted lived a life of hardship and may have been expected to capitulate to the heaviness of his circumstances was born in January of 1809 in Boston, Massachusetts. At the age of three, his father abandoned him and his mother died, leaving him and his two siblings orphaned before being separated or adopted into different families. In his teens, his desire to be a writer led to a falling out with his adopted father who cut him out of the family will and left him penniless. He continued to write but also turned to gambling and excessive drinking and struggled to stay employed. In 1844, he saw some success in his career and joy from his marriage but again fell into despair when his wife fell ill and died. His drinking worsened and by 1849 his troubled soul reflected in his dark written works capitulated to his grief and burdens. Hopefully in death his pain shall be nevermore for the writer of The Raven Edgar Allan Poe. Consider for a moment the term raven, which originally referred to the common raven, Corvus corax, the type species of the genus Corvus, which has a larger distribution than any other species of Corvus, ranging over much of the northern hemisphere. The modern English word raven has cognates in all other Germanic languages, including Old Norse and subsequently modern Icelandic, Old High German, all of which descend from Proto-Germanic. Similar to the malicious sounding murder associated with a group of another bird in this genus, the crow, hence the phrasing a murder of crows, the collective nouns for a group of ravens, or at least the common raven, include rave, treachery, and conspiracy, though in practice most people in reference to most birds, be it ravens, crows, or any other, use the more generic term, flock. 
There seems to be a pattern here. Question is, why such a dark and foreboding imagery denoted to this genus of birds? In Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Raven, the bird reinforces to the point of taunting the grief of a man in despair over his lost love, Lenore. In Celtic mythology, the raven is featured in many legends, feeding as it does on carrion with its black plumage and disturbing deep hoarse croak, it is considered foreboding, often seen as an omen of death. It can also be associated as a source of power, straddling as it does the worlds of the living and the dead. Therefore, often it is depicted as a messenger between the two. It is said in Cornish folklore that King Arthur did not die but his spirit entered into that of a red-billed chuff, a member of the crow family. The red feet and beak of the bird are said to represent the violence of his last battle. The red-billed chuff has particular cultural connections to Cornwall and it appears on the Cornish coat of arms. It is deemed very unlucky to kill this bird. In Norse mythology, the god of the Aesir pantheon, Odin, is sometimes referred to as the raven god. This is due to his association with the ravens Hugin and Munin, as referenced in the Poetic Edda, a collection of Old Norse poems compiled in the 13th century. These two birds fly around the world gathering information and relay it all to Odin. From ancient myths to modern day movies, the raven seems to present a darkness by its presence. As the natural response to the appearance of a raven may be to feel fear, if one arrives at the home of an enemy, it may be a sign that they should consider capitulation before it is too late. Apathy Hour is written and produced independently. Sources are available in the show notes. Thank you for listening. That is all.